welcome everybody to Spotlight Episode 8. I'm super excited about um, today's guest. It's Diana Stepner. She has a background in product leadership. Um, and I'd, I'd love uh, to you, for you to kind of explain your background, Diana, um, to our listeners, just um, where you came from and how you got to where you're at now, how you found your passion in product. Um, but I know there's kind of a lot to unpack there, but just first, if you can give an introduction to yourself. Sure. I'm Diana Stepner, and as Tega said, I'm in product management. I've been in project management for quite a long time. My foundation actually was in user experience research, and I joined um, Salesforce really early on and was their first user experience researcher, and I kept sharing my ideas with the product folks and was wondering why can't I just do what they do and then work with engineering and marketing and others to be able to bring these ideas and these new features to life. So I pivoted over to product management and been in product management ever since. Just curious, how early on uh, at Salesforce? (laughs) I do see the dates here. I I do see the dates. I I know that it's it's a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, just as just for perspective, like how many employees were at Salesforce at this time? Because right now it's obviously a publicly traded company. Yeah. Um, it's on, you know, it's yeah, it was one of the um, biggest, you know, tallest skyscrapers in San Francisco is, I think, the Salesforce Tower. Yeah. So I won't. Yeah, the year will be on my LinkedIn. But it was interesting because I worked at a startup called Epiphany, and. Folks may know of Steve Blank. He writes a lot about innovation, and he was one of the original marketing people at Epiphany. And then Epiphany, you know, evolved as all um, startups do. And so when, um, yeah, it became kind of interesting in regards to how we were going to grow and scale, that was also around the time that Salesforce was growing and scaling as well. So there are a bunch of people from Epiphany who went to go work at Salesforce. And so I, I had some connections there pretty early on. But I will say the, the unique thing about the Salesforce time, and this will probably you know, date some of it as well, it was right the year that Gmail started. And so I have a really, oh, wow. um, really cool Gmail address. <laughs> because um, one of the people that was also a product manager, her husband worked in um, the Gmail area. So we were able to get pretty early um, email addresses. Very cool. Well, it sounds like exciting that uh, you got to pretty much work hands-on like at the beginning, or I don't know, like kind of in the middle of the the Silicon Valley revolution, the Silicon Valley bubble. Um, And I do see here that you pretty much have well, actually, no. You went to uh, undergrad in San Diego. Yeah. Um, and also, why'd you get a? You got a communications degree. Obviously, you're a fantastic speaker. Um, but what made you decide to go to San Diego, and why'd you get a communications degree? So, I had some friends who went to university in San Diego. So I figured, hey, they liked it. I should go too, which um, is never, never way I recommend anybody make their university decision, but that's what I did. And I did communications because at that time I wanted to be um, a producer, like on a TV show. Um, not, not in any way, shape or form in front of the camera, but behind the camera. I thought that would be fun. And I realized with a communication degree, I could do everything and nothing. 
And so when I graduated, it was, you know, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I knew that I really liked technology, but programming was never my thing. And I really liked just being able to bring together people and technology. So a lot of folks said business school would be a great place to kind of bridge between, you know, those technology aspects that you grew up with, because I grew up in Silicon Valley and, you know, and then you could combine um, your communications degree through extending it in business. And so I went directly from university to business school. So I did not pass go, did not put $200. I just I went directly. I do see like it, you went to um, Boston University, so you pretty much got to experience like some of the, I mean, I guess San Diego is not really an academia, I guess UC San Diego and, um, well, yeah, UC San Diego is the best uh, UC school. I, like eight years ago when I was, or like nine years ago when I was in college, I remember, I was just like, heck yeah, like San Diego would be really fun to go to college. But it seemed like, yeah, you went to, you grew up in um, Silicon Valley, um, and then you went to Boston as well. So you kind of were all in like, these educational hubs. Yeah. Um, did you go to Boston just to be in another educational hub? Um, or did you want to get kind of in, you know more into the cold weather? So, um, why'd you decide to setting yeah, Boston? Really, really, um, you, you've hit on a number of the points that um, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people who's always, always in motion in some way, shape or form, reading, learning, walking, you know, exercising, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so San Diego was a little bit too laid back for me. And so I decided to go mm-hmm. to the opposite extreme and went to Boston to experience, you know, something beside other than sun. So Boston had all the four seasons and yeah, I just, I really loved it. I, I don't like to drive. Um, so being able to be in mm-hmm. a city where you can just walk everywhere and take public transport everywhere and it's got, you know, all the seasons, I just loved it. I thought it was an amazing experience and I loved business school because everyone was there because they wanted to be. Um, it was their choice and it mm-hmm. was very collaborative and very just, um, yeah, a great opportunity for me to really build my wow. skills. I think a lot of people probably experienced that in university. I didn't. So for me, business school was essentially like my university. I really just gained a great amount of understanding, a great amount of just awareness of what, you know, the potential could be, you know, when I entered in the the working world into my career. So I, I really loved business school. I just thought it was amazing. Wow. And I guess being in Boston, there's MIT, there's Harvard, there's also Boston College and Boston University, of course. Uh, were you able to network with a bunch of uh, like just different students, different programs um, within those universities? Because I feel like I've never been to Boston, but I hear that downtown yeah. you can walk across it in like 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to visit Boston. I've been to a bunch of different places, but yeah. um, Boston is definitely high up on my list of places that I've never been. I recommend but. not going in January, February. It's very cold. Uh, but imagine (laughs) I I didn't I'll be honest I didn't do much with the other schools Um, later on when I worked at at Pearson I I did do a lot with the other schools but when I was at Boston University we tended to stay in our in our own bubble what I did like about the MBA program is that there were people in there who were getting joint degrees with JD so joint law degrees there were people there getting communications degrees and MBA you know programs there were people doing IT you know in some capacity with the MBA so 
and that that I really really liked because um, you, again you get all these different um, thoughts and just you know contributions from Very people. Cool. So I really like that. You can kind of you can kind of be a jack of all trades, understanding like business and law. Yeah. Um, very eclectic uh, skill set. But what did you end up doing after uh, your MBA, after Boston? So I was in a class in university and sorry, I, in my business program, and we were talking about like, you know, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I said I wanted to do something that combined marketing and, you know, business and had a facet in technology. And someone sitting behind me said, I work for a company that does that. And so, a few hops later, I ended up at that company. I worked for a company called Epsilon, and they did customer relationship management. And so bringing together that technology, analyzing customer data, being able to identify customer segmentation, and then apply that insight to do marketing campaigns. And so that's, that's Sounds like what a I good did. foundation for Salesforce. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Um, and so that was my quote first real job. Um, I really loved it. I worked at um, Epsilon for a number of years and worked on uh, our client at that time was Apple. So I got to do a lot of work with Apple wow. marketing programs and segmentation. And then that brought me to Macromedia, which was subsequently bought by Adobe. But I worked on Macromedia for Very a number cool. of years. And did you go through the or were you in when they got bought out by Adobe? Were you no, working? They got, oh, okay. they got bought later on. I see. But Macromedia, we had CRM tools. We had customer relationship management tools. And one of the companies that pitched mm -hmm. us was Epiphany. And so that that's how I ended up at Epiphany. I just I really, cool. really liked the product. I liked what it could do, you know, for, for me as, you know, someone who is working in, you know, customer relationship management. And so I joined. I joined the company, and was able and to join. Again, I know that. Yeah. I know that you transitioned from Epiphany to Salesforce, uh, but what does Epiphany do exactly again? Yeah. So like, Epiphany, what was their product? Yeah, they don't. They don't exist anymore. But it was a customer relationship management tool, and the difference being is that it was all in the cloud. And so, whereas okay. prior tools were more on-premise and very, you know, heavy from a desktop perspective, Epiphany was all in the cloud, and so you could access it anywhere wow. and be able to use web technologies. So that that was pretty neat, and I just I loved the founder's vision, just what they were trying to do, and I I really lucked out because they were only in the US when I joined and then they opened a European mm -hmm. office in the UK in London and so I was able to go over and be um, kind of yeah a bridge between the office in Silicon Valley and then the London group so I, I ended up staying in London for a long period of time Wow okay so this was before so you were in London, and because I see here, you also were in London uh, at Monster Worldwide, yep. and also at Razor Razorfish and uh, Kayak. So yep. you, you were in London um, before Salesforce, and then you went back to San Francisco, worked at Salesforce, and then went back over to London. So what, why um, did you have a lot of interest in London um, when you were younger, or why um, why were you the bridge between London and uh, Silicon Valley? 
Yeah, so for me, it was in professional services, you work with everybody in the organization. So I worked with engineers, I worked with product managers, I worked with, you know, all these different facets. And so I was able to then bring a lot of that knowledge over to the office in London and just worked on projects across Europe. And also over time, we expanded to... um, expanded to EMEA so I was able to do work in Australia and New Zealand just all over the place and it was it was amazing but it was it got to the point where the product was too technical for the end users and I was trying to understand why Um, I could train the customers Mm -hmm. I could you know help them understand you know how to use it but it, it didn't really stick with them and I was you know, wrestling, you know, why was that? They didn't, they didn't have that epiphany. Exactly, ironically. Um, <laughs> yeah. good, it was very good, very pointed. Um, but what but, it was is that the, the tool was too technical um, from a user experience perspective, mm-hmm. that the terminology was written by engineers and the end users were marketers. Mm-hmm. They just didn't get it. And so that's what led me to go back to get another degree in um, human-computer interaction. I wanted to understand, you know, the mental models, what was causing our users who love the idea of the product not be able to comprehend it. Why were they getting stuck? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was because Mm -hmm. the engineering terminology was bleeding into the interface. And they just didn't get it. The product workflows were designed for engineers, not for the customer. And so that, I got a degree in human-computer interaction for Berkeley, and that's where I learned a lot about user experience research and how do you make sure that what's happening on the interface is you know, reflective of the customer, whereas the back end is more of the technical. You don't want the technical to bleed into the interface. And just how to do mm-hmm. um, all of that research to be able to ensure that the product really um, embraces and reflects what the customer is trying to do and reflects their mental models. So, yeah. Wow. I don't, yeah so you I don't pretty much, in a nutshell, you pretty much like dumbed down very complicated softwares and programs for uh, marketers. Yeah. Like, that was kind of like, wow. That sounds yeah. very complicated. But it was, yeah, it was an amazing like, experience, yeah. And I, I, I'm not saying that I recommend everybody get multiple degrees, but it, mm-hmm. for me, to be able to really comprehend what was changing in the space, because it was the time that, you know, user experiences were really getting developed on the web, and just being mm-hmm. able to better define how you could, um, yeah, have someone adopt and use your product in a way that didn't require them to, like, just retrain their whole brain it was really yeah it was really impactful and powerful and so that's what that's what led me into to salesforce is i interned at salesforce during um yeah while getting my my green human computer interaction very cool uh and then so salesforce it looked like uh you know you uh, gained a lot of experience then you became the vice president of product um, at what in uh, Western Europe or of Western Europe uh, at Monster Worldwide. So like, um, how did you end up going back to London and how did um, that opportunity come about? 
Yeah, so I, I always wanted to return to London. Again, I, I don't drive um, or I don't like to drive. Mm-hmm. And I just, I loved being in London. You could go for a city break in, you know, Vienna or Prague or, you know, Florence, wherever. Wow. And so that was just amazing. And I really appreciated interacting with so many different types of cultures and just being able to experience how people you know, in one country might be more forthright. In another country, you have to prod them to be able to come forward with that information and just how different, um, you know, legal considerations need to be factored in when you're building products. And so for me, it was just like all of these opportunities in such a close space. And I I loved it. And so when I had the opportunity to go, you know, to go back, I, I did. And I applied for jobs and got a job at Monster because I had that background in business, had a background mm-hmm. in product, I had a background of you know working with data from my, my degrees, and so it just brought everything together. And so I started off leading product for UK and Ireland, and so over time just more more regions, and so my mm-hmm. My final title at Monster was, yeah, the VP of Western Europe. Very cool. Uh, And then when you were, because when you said you came to London, you were able to kind of understand all these different cultures. Obviously, you can do, you know, quick weekend trips to Vienna um, and all very amazing cities across Europe. Uh, Did you ever experience any sort of culture shock or how were you able to adapt um, so well? Because I'm assuming that it was able to, um, kind of bleed into your, your professional life, obviously, when you're working with other cultures and working with other countries. Yeah. But did you experience any type of, um, yeah, culture shock when you first came to London and ex- kind of adapting to these new cultures, or how how were you able to adapt so well? Yeah, um, London. It was. It sounds funny, but it's like it wasn't as much of a culture shock. I think the thought, you know, the part that was cool is like mm-hmm. I was the one with the accent, so that was kind of neat. Um, I had friends who were in London, so they helped me, you know, navigate around. Also being part of, you know, Epiphany when I went over originally, I mean, I had a whole, you know, gaggle of of friends that I developed from work. So that was, you know, really quick. And then with Epiphany when I was there, we would go work on projects, you know, at different countries. So I did spend a lot of time in different cultures. And so what I learned is just to listen. Um, and just to be able to, you know, get a sense, get a read of the client, of the customer, of the culture. And that, that has served me throughout my career is I will listen and I will, you know, listen in an engaged manner to be able to really try to understand, you know, what people are saying, but also equally importantly, what they're not saying. Um, what does the body language tell me? What do the impressions tell me? What do the behaviors tell me? And to be able to then apply that to you know the the work that I do, and so it, it really helped me just to be able to to acknowledge and you know be able to think about how do I work most effectively with with people because they're all different. That that has really served me through, well throughout my career. Uh, and it sounds like you've worked obviously a lot in the Commonwealth countries, Western Europe, the UK. Um, uh, and when you say that you've been there for like like, like a period of time, like how long is that, that period of time? Like is that a couple of days or is that a week or is that a month? Yeah, we would typically on projects, they would be a couple months. Um, so you would go there, you know, Whoa, okay. fly out on a Monday, come back on a Friday, that type of thing. 
And so a couple months, mm-hmm. um, I was also able to work on a, a banking project in Australia. So I spent a couple weeks in, in Australia. Wow. So it was quite um, a longer period of time because you did need to customize wow. the Epiphany software to the customer. And then also I worked on the mm-hmm. training. Wow. So what was your favorite uh, place that you traveled to? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, it sounds kind of biased, I guess. I loved London. So I, I really like to come back to mm-hmm. London. Um, I loved everything about London. London seems like a really cool place. Yeah. Um, if it, if it, it didn't rain so heard, much, I think, stayed. I think, um, is it right? I think, I'm pretty sure like Toronto, New York, and London are like the three most diverse cities or like they have like the most uh, diverse population. Yeah. Um, so... And London's actually one of those, I've never been to London either, so I definitely want to um, check it out. I just yeah. heard the food is not amazing, though. How did you like the food? It's interesting. When I got there originally, it it was quite, um, I guess, yeah, it was quite meat and potatoes and that type of thing. But now mm-hmm. it's just, I think a lot of places have similar they food. Yeah, when I go back now, it's, it's got amazing diversity of cuisine. You know, I think things have definitely um, evolved a lot uh, over the years. They probably have like really trendy restaurants and um, <laughs> all that. But and I hear yeah. London has a pretty awesome um, like going out culture. I think in Europe in general, um, yeah. and also I think well, I've never lived in Europe. I've been there a couple times. I've lived in Japan only for like a period of like you know four to eight months at a time and then like South America for six months Um, and what I've noticed compared to America a lot of these places they're like more going out cultures like they like you know four or five times a week they go out they go out to drinks they go out for dinner like multiple times a day Um, did you like to go to London because of that like culture too and, and did that help you kind of experience and um, understand different cultures as well, just because I feel like London is such a diverse city. Yeah, it was, it was kind of natural. I mean, because mm-hmm. I think, well, my husband's South African, and I met him in London. And the, you know, what he always says is that because you know you don't drive to work, you can stay and hang out mm-hmm. at the pub and have a couple drinks with your mates before you head off to the train or take the, you know, take the the tube home. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just with the way the city is set up more about public transport that makes it, you know, easier for people to be able mm-hmm. to to stay after and socialize. And so that definitely was a perk. I like that a lot. You see that in, you know, other yeah. countries too. And it just it helps mm-hmm. you get to know people, it helps you to to acclimate. Um, but I think it's definitely because of, you know, the public transportation um, just being one of the main modes mm-hmm. that people take to get to work. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that, I mean, yeah, the United States definitely could do a lot better on its public transit. Um, but I certainly agree, too. Like in Japan, like the public transit's amazing. And um, yeah. yeah, drinking is definitely something that people do after work. Um, and then also a little side note. I did study abroad in South Africa at University of Cape Town, oh, so I have lived in South Africa. Okay. Um, it's really cool. Um, is your husband from Cape Town, or is he from... He went to school... What part of the country? Yeah, he went to school all over the place, and so he's... Yeah, he grew up and went to school in Cape Town, and then also went to university in, in Durban and Johannesburg. Very cool. 
uh, kind of he hit all like the the biggest <laughs> cities. And fun fact, and I'm sure you already know this, Durban has like the big, it has such good, amazing Indian food. It has the biggest Indian population outside of India, which is like something that I feel like a lot of people don't know. Yeah. But um, yeah, to kind of get back onto um, product, um, so when you were in London working at Monster, um, you you obviously helped grow the staff. You did a lot of different things. Um, what made you join uh, Razorfish? Because it seems like Monster is like a really good um, opportunity. And actually, this is a question that um, Brian had. Um, so I can kind of piggyback off this. Like, what he kind of was just like, what made you decide to jump from really cool opportunity to really cool opportunity? Because it seems like it'd be hard to leave like you know, companies like Salesforce or Monster, um, like Hayek. Um, those are all like you know name brand opportunities that a lot yeah. of people probably build their careers off of. So for for me, it was because I wanted to explore new technologies, and Monster was developing, but I just wanted to be immersed in in everything new, mm-hmm. and so I decided to join an agency because. I knew I would be working on multiple clients, multiple projects, and the focus was on you know helping them adopt the next thing. And so I was working in emerging media, which at that time meant mobile and social and gaming and digital signage and digital tables, but it just allowed me to really immerse in what was happening next. And that, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I loved it. Um, I worked on really amazing brands and was then able to apply that knowledge to my next product role, which was at a company called Cheap Flights, which was subsequently bought by Kayak. Mm-hmm. And so I helped the, the product team for a year just embrace you know, mobile and social and just get more involved in what was happening just as people were transitioning from you know, desktop devices to mobile mm-hmm. devices. And so I worked with the product team just to build up their expertise there. And then I was you know, there for a short period of time because my next opportunity at Pearson came along and that was to be mm-hmm. able to establish the Future Technologies Group. And that brought together, you know, all my product management experience from, you know, Monster as well as from Salesforce and you know, my work at Epiphany and to be able to help Pearson, which was a, a publisher, be able to transition to digital mm-hmm. and embrace, you know, again, all the wow. mobile and social and all the digital facets that I had from Razorfish and my whole product background to be able to create a team that could then work across the organization to help the organization change. And so that that's what I did at I Pearson. But it, it aligned well with my monster too, because it was about education mm-hmm. and learning and helping people um, yeah, embrace careers as opposed to just having a job that didn't reflect you or help you grow. So it brought all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Well, and- and kind of to go off of your experience um, at Pearson, and of course, it seems like um, your career serendipitously just like evolved, um, you know, amazingly. But um, Peter had a question, um, and it, you know, he wants to understand. Uh, I was developing product for, you know, ed tech 
uh, folks like, you know, readers, teachers, um, adult learners? Um, how is developing products for these type of users different than other type of customers? Yeah. So my original jobs at at Pearson were for central organi- the central organization. So it was helping the business transition. So in the beginning mm-hmm. couple of years, my, my customer, my client was the business. And so I was helping mm-hmm. um, business units develop prototypes using new technologies. I was launching developer relations so we could you know, have others use our content to be able to build applications. I was building partnerships with Mm -hmm. um, incubators and accelerators to get us more involved in the startup space and just help create a better ecosystem. So a lot of my work in the beginning was more, um, yeah, centrally organized to be able to spread out to the business. Mm -hmm. When when I moved back to the U.S., um, that's when I got more into the product, the traditional product management side on the higher education Mm -hmm. uh, part of Pearson. And... It's the thing I would say is extremely regulated. Um, education is, is very, mm-hmm. very regulated, you know, for, for logical reasons. And that was probably the biggest difference for me. Um, when I'd been in product in other roles, there wasn't as much consideration about the legal constraints that define what you can and cannot do. And so I, I had to learn about that a lot um, from a higher education perspective. But that also served me well when I, I went from Pearson over to Simple Practice, which was a mental health and wellness company. Mm-hmm. Again, very regulated industry, but it, my knowledge from Pearson and how you navigate those, those legal requirements was, was helpful um, when I was at Simple Practice. But now that I'm back in education, it's been a, a good foundation for, for understanding the even more nuanced space that is K-12. Yeah, I think... It, well, and you were kind of just experiencing, you know, transitioning Pearson from publishing and paper to, you know, online technology. Um, and I think right now we see it in K-12 education, it's rapidly changing and evolving. Yeah. Uh, and this is just kind of a question that uh, I'm not sure if, if you know the answer to, but I think that a lot of teachers are seeing their students using, like, AI uh, when they're studying. What are your thoughts on AI and how do you think the education system um, is going to evolve in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I think we're seeing it um, with both teachers and with students that they're using AI. And to me, it's really exciting. Um, from a, an educator, from a teacher perspective, it helps them you know, have some busy work um, taken over by technology. And so there's there's facets that mm-hmm. they can you know automate or have automated through technology, which is really helpful. For the students, you know, similar to, you know, Wikipedia, and even when people started talking about search, you know, it gives them more insight, more knowledge. And I also think the combination Mm -hmm. between the two creates more engaging conversations because the teachers can ask the students why. Um, They can get more into Mm -hmm. discussions beyond just an answer. And so whereas, you know, without AI, for example, you would, you know, still be able to search and get some information and what comes back. And so now when we talk about like a flipped classroom, you do that more as well in the K-12 realm too, to have that critical thinking and that dialogue with the students about why do you think this is the answer? Or even do you know if the answer is right? Because the AI can bring back mm-hmm. hallucinations, which may not be... Um, 
the right way to think about things. And so it creates more engagement and it creates more dialogue, which again, helps students think more creatively, creatively, um, and helps them just, yeah, think more broadly than just the answer. And so I think it's going to open up a lot of opportunities for students really to, um, to grow and to go beyond just memorizing an answer, for example. And do you think it's going to be more, because it sounds like kind of you can use that AI tool as obviously you can prompt it and you can ask it different questions uh, and treat it kind of as a peer uh, that can use the whole entire internet um, on its shoulders to answer and um, give a fantastic question. Um, but do you think, because um, I am half Japanese, I've seen how they have their education system in Japan, which is a lot more intense than it is in the United States. They also go to school for like 220 days a year, uh, which like they have cram schools and all that stuff. So it's like Japan, South Korea, Singapore. And then you go to the other side of the spectrum where it's still top education, but it's like Scandinavia where it's more Socratic based discussion. Um, learning, which it sounds like that's more where the United States is gearing towards with AI, utilizing it as that that kind of medium. Uh, what are your thoughts just on like the K-12 education system um, since you've been to so many different places? Um, what do you think the solution is? Because um, the United States ranks fairly low on K-12 education for math, for reading, for science, um, compared to other different, like, you know, other countries. Uh, and I feel like, your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very meaty topic. Um, and it's one that I think will evolve, that we're seeing people question whether they need to go to university and you know how much experience can you gain just by doing and so as i think you know students as well as teachers look at the way technology can help um, surface opportunity for richer engagement in the classroom i hope that it will help students um, learn and explore more in a way that's right for them not everybody learns in the same way at the same time in the same method and so by having technology be more readily available there's the opportunities for the teacher to have more of a a truly you know interactive and personal experience with the students in a way that helps the students learn in the method that's best for them and so I think um, I'm hoping that it will make um, education more relevant and more enjoyable for students, but also better prepare them for you know, when they graduate, whatever time they decide to graduate, make them better prepared for the interactions and the engagement and the, the types of situations mm-hmm. that they'll face upon graduation. And, and having a background in product, what do you think the next gen products are going to be um, in uh, you know, the K-12 education system? Because when I was, um, I think it was when I was in, I remember maybe high school, like the smart board was a like the next like the cool thing where they they're using the smart board for all the stuff instead of the. Or I think it was just like these projectors where I don't even know what the, the machines called where you put like the. Yeah. No, I'm talking about like the blank. Yeah, it's like. But uh, what do you think the next gen products? Yeah, I, do what? 
I don't know about, I, well, I'll take it back. I think more in regards to like form factors. Um, we still see a lot of students using, you know, like Chromebooks. I mean, the, the quote laptops are still quite prevalent. You've got, you know, students who will then progress and do, you know, everything amazing on their phones. I mean, I think the thing that we all wonder about is that immersion. So is there, you know, going to be this evolution where we're more immersed in um, some type of, you know, metaverse? And so I think that'll be something, it'll be fascinating to see that it, how it evolves. And so whereas, you know, you read about, you know, some type of historic event, can you now immerse yourself in it? And so I think that's one of the things that we'll, we'll wonder about and see how it evolves just with, you know, the technology being richer and more accessible than it ever has been. That would be so fun to be able to just put a VR headset and then experience, um, you know, a historical uh, point in time or a historical moment in time. Um, yeah, just kind of, um, uh, I had a good question and it just ex escaped my head. Um, <laughs> um just, I mean, for, for me, was, I can say I really like product yeah. because it allows me to explore so many different things. Mm -hmm. And that's probably mm -hmm. the, the connection between all parts of my background is I grew up in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, you know, with technology being all around me. And again, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't a programmer. Um, I was more on the, you know, on the side with the, the business. And so I liked mm -hmm. that product would enabled me to, you know, explore the tech, explore the business and bring that together with, you know, the user facets with that research element. And so for folks that are wondering, you know, I need to find that one path, product is a path, but it isn't just one type. There are so many different types of product managers and so many different types of mm -hmm. approaches to product management. And that's one of the reasons I love it because you can make it your own. And I think that opens up a lot of creativity and opportunity for people that are interested in product management. Fantastic. And actually I did think of the question that I was going to ask you. Um, and it's just, and I mean, it probably could be that, that similar um, thing that you just said, but what would you tell your 22 years old self or 23 year old self fresh out of college, um, what type of advice would you tell? To not take life so seriously. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, like throughout my career, I've, I've always worked really, really hard and I'm glad that I did. And I think sometimes you just need to take a step back and just acknowledge like you're in Australia, you're in London and just acknowledge the opportunities that, you know, are available because of that you know, place or situation you're in and enjoy it. Um, so I know a lot of folks are like, I gotta get to the next level. I've got to do the next thing. But mm -hmm. sometimes if you just stop and acknowledge where you are and the amazing things around you, that can be, that can be even more powerful than just trying to get to the next level. I love that. Um, and I think those are fantastic ending thoughts, Diana. I really appreciate yeah. it for your time today. Uh, Thank you. And uh, I'm super excited for this episode release. Yeah.